bags are packed, are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road Riding with you in the sunnier days I wouldn't want it any other Hello and welcome back to a real episode after last week's absolute kerfuffle episode. So thank you again for your patience because Dr. Neil Barnard was meant to be here last week in time for the launch of his amazing new book, Your Body in Balance, which was released last week on the 4th of February, 2020. He's here today. <laughs> thank Goodness, he forgave me for our technical difficulties we had and was so kind to re-record this episode with me today and you're going to get it as soon as possible. As soon as it is edited and done, it will be in your hands. So thank you for your patience. And again, thank you, Dr. Neil Barnard, for his time sharing this incredible information with you all. If you don't have a copy yet of Your Body in Balance, it is available everywhere, but I will put the link in the show notes. So make sure you click on the show notes so that you can get your copy today. I'm sure it's on Kindle, heart, you know, paperback, and I'm not sure if it's on audiobook yet, but I'm sure it will be down the track. So definitely get your hands on a copy because this book is not to quote the Game Changers documentary, but it is a game changer as a woman, but it's not just for women. It's for both, you know, all genders. It's for everyone because hormones and getting our hormones in balance impacts us all. Uh, you know, you always meet people who have, we're talking in this episode about how your hormones impact on your potential of developing prostate cancer or excess breast tissue for men, uh, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, sorry, endometriosis, Hashimoto's disease, polycystic ovarian syndrome, fibroids, menstrual cramps. In this conversation, I um, really tried to answer questions that people may have about this subject and some of the questions that people have asked me throughout my time with this podcast about brittle hair and weak nails. We've talked about calcium. We talked about soy. We talked about lectins. We spoke about mood. Oh, gosh. We talked about erectile dysfunction, heart disease, protein. We talked about sleep, oil. We talked even about back back problems and discs, disc issues in our backs. Uh, we talked about arthritis and it was just a great conversation uh, and... Well, I'm not, I'm not giving my – he, Dr. Neil Barnard, gave some really great answers um, to all of my questions. And I know as someone who's been surrounded by, in my work with women's circles and women's work, women talking about their menstrual cramping, clotting, severe, heavy periods – endometriosis, polycystic ovarian syndrome, fibroids, you know, women who are talking about getting hysterectomies in their late 30s, early 40s because the, the pain and suffering that they've been experiencing has become so unbearable that they just want their uterus gone. This episode, if you're one of those women, this episode is for you or if you're a sister or a partner or a, a husband or a wife, 
This episode is for you. If you have any loved ones who are struggling with their, you know, with their sexual function, their erectile function, their menstrual cycle, hot flushes, mood, you know, decreasing before their period and during their period. There are so many things that this book that Dr. Neil Barnard has just written, there are so many areas that it covers that can help so many people that we know pretty much, you know, there's so many women, there's so many women now taking thyroid medication. And and this book is just a real game changer for those women to discover that, you know, with the help of a plant-based diet that's low in saturated fat and low in oils, you know, we can, from many in many cases, completely reverse the issues that we're having with our hormones or at least radically in- improve, which is such a relief for so many I know. So I'm so excited to get my hand on this book. I know that many women may think, oh, you know, it's another, another man mansplaining about women's bodies. But this is a – Dr. Neil Barnard is a, a highly professional, educated doctor who has the best interests of everyone in his heart with the work that he does. He has so much integrity. Uh, he's been, you know, head of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, uh, the founder, you know, for many, many years now, PCRM. I will link that in the show notes. So you can have a look at his research and his body of work, helping people with diabetes, helping people to, to prevent and reverse diabetes for years and years now with his pioneering research. He is just such an honourable man and when he has met patients that have come in time and time again with issues with out-of-balance hormones. This is his gift to us all to pull all of his wisdom and knowledge into a resource that can benefit all of us to learn more about our hormones and what helps them to come back into balance and to prevent and reverse many of the issues And the really serious conditions that can not only impact our quality of life, but can also end up shortening our lifespan overall. So I'm so excited for this book. I am so glad that it's here. And I really, really hope that you share this episode with your family and friends, because this is a subject that impacts us all. We all have been touched by someone who is having thyroid problems, Hashimoto's disease, breast cancer, prostate cancer, erectile dysfunction, severe menstrual cramping. And you'll be so surprised hearing him discuss these issues because I, I was, and we take we take our, the functioning of our bodies a bit for granted at times. And so it's great to hear Dr. Barnard kind of explain things in ways that are really easy to understand, but have a really profound impact well have it had a really profound impact on me when I heard them, but also made me realize the things that I can do to help improve that are simple things that I can do to help improve my hormonal health and bring my hormones back into balance. So thank you, Dr. Neil Barnard, for this book. Thank you so much for your time. I hope you all enjoy this episode and I'll see you at the end of the show. Bye. Thank you so much. I apologize. We set it, set it up. I just, I just, this is the first time this has happened, actually. This, sure. I sure. I to everybody. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it really is. Oh, my gosh. 
Um, no, don't worry. Thank you so much for your time. So thank you, yeah, thank you for coming on the show for a second time. My absolute pleasure. So today we are going to be talking about your new book, Your Body in Balance, which I'm so looking forward to reading. And it came out on February 4th, am I right? That's exactly right. Yeah, it's brand new. Oh, it's so exciting. And I, I think I've mentioned it to you outside of this recording that I um, I really was excited when I heard that you were writing this book. I um because I have so many women in my life with thyroid problems on long-term thyroid medication or who have Hashimoto's um, disease uh, or have menstrual cramps or who have so many different issues involving hormones. And so when I saw that this book was being written, I was thinking, oh, my gosh, there's so many people who need this book in their hands. So what motivated you to write it? Oh, well, well, thank you for saying that. And that's really what it is. It's not sort of a general nutrition book. It's, it's really all about hormones and how we can control them with food. And it affects so many things. What, what started me on this road actually was a phone call. I was sitting here at my desk and a young woman called me up and she said, I've got a business trip tomorrow, but I can't get on the plane because menstrual cramps are just killing me. And a lot of women will get some cramping, but for maybe one in 10 or so, they're just off the scale, cannot move, kind of cramping. Um, and so what she wanted was for me to prescribe her a very strong painkiller. And I said, well, well, I can do that um, for a couple of days, but let's, let's think about how we stop this from happening again next month. And the month after that, the month after that, and the month after that. And I ended up suggesting a diet that I, I thought might work, but I wasn't sure if it would work. Um, I was calling back in my memory that uh, breast cancer patients would often be asked to greatly increase the fiber content of their diet because that would remove excess estrogens out of their blood. And you also scale back the, the fat. So lots of fiber, very little fat. And it would, would reduce estrogen and hopefully extend cancer survival. But in her case, I thought she's got too much estrogen that's affecting the uterus every month and leading to cramps. So I said, how about no animal products for the next month? That means everything you're eating is going to be from a plant and it would be low in fat, high in fiber. And, and also keep the greasy stuff out of your diet. So French fries and potato chips, we're not going to have that. And it, it was an absolute cure for her. Um, so, well, but then I thought, well, that's, that's one person. So I connected with the Georgetown university department of OBGYN and we tried it in a large group of women and it worked really well. It diminished not only the pain, but also the PMS leading up to it, like not feeling like yourself and bloating and all that stuff. So I thought we were onto something. If you can control hormones through food, then annoyances like cramps might go away, but the, but the, the, the more dangerous things breast cancer, uterine cancer, in men, prostate cancer. Now we've got a measure of control over those. So that's what started me off on this road. That is fascinating. And so how, how when you're talking about prostate cancer, how did the hormones affect the prostate and, and the likelihood of people getting cancer, men getting cancer of the prostate? Yeah, well, it used to be thought, and, and to this day, some doctors would say, uh, it, it doesn't have anything to do with anything other than the fact that you're old. Um, you'll hear some doctors say all men will get prostate cancer if they just live long enough. I have to say that's really not true. Um, we haven't fi filled out all the puzzle pieces, but but some of the main puzzle pieces came in when you start looking around the world. Researchers discovered that men who consume more dairy 
products, milk or cheese, have a higher risk of prostate cancer. And so then within the United States, researchers, researchers started looking at men um, who consume more milk versus men who don't. And as you know, milk has estrogens in it uh, that come from the cow. And it turned out that men consuming the most milk had about 34% higher risk of prostate cancer in one huge Harvard study. And then in a second study, it was about 60% higher. Um, we haven't worked out all the details yet on this, but what we know is that milk is associated with prostate cancer. We know that in a man's body, milk causes, quite apart from its estrogens and everything, it causes the production of a certain compound in the body called IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor, number one. And that seems to stimulate the growth of prostate cancer cells. So that may be our, our smoking gun there. But then there are our protectors, uh, tomatoes. They have lycopene, that's the red pigment, and that's a, a prostate cancer preventer. So if I'm eating more plants and less from animals, we should be shifting our diet toward preventing cancer. That's really interesting. And I know that we've spoken about this before in the episode, though it didn't go to air. But um, when you talk about fruits and vegetables, such as tomatoes, uh, I was reminded again of this book that a lot of people in my peer group are reading and and enjoying or at least giving them some food for thought. And that is the book by Steve Gundry, The Plant Paradox. And like you said, tomatoes. So some people are saying that he's saying that plant foods are detrimental to our health because of the le- leptins. Leptins, uh, right. Leptins. So, what, so what, what, what is your thought on that? Um, my thought is that there are an awful lot of people writing books about things, um, and it gets confusing for the poor reader who's trying to make sense of it, mm. um, because there is abundant research showing that if you eat vegetables and fruits and beans and whole grains, um, they're good for you. They reduce cancer risk. They reduce the risk of cardiovascular disease and, and have many other benefits. And then you have some other people saying, well, there's certain constituents called lectins in a bean, for example, that could be harmful. Um, I think the take-home message is that if you cook them, they'll be fine. And if you ever tried to eat raw, dried beans, you certainly would regret it. So um, <laughs> I frankly think that's that's all there is to it. Um, yeah. You hear the lectin theory, uh, but it, it seems to actually have no practical value. Yes. Okay. Great. Great, because I like beans and hummus and all vegetables. So I, I, read, yeah. I read that. I read well. I read pieces of that book and thought, oh my gosh, you know. I, I was worried for the planet and the animals and all the people who are reading that book and going to a more meat, dairy centered diet as a result. So thank you for clearing that up a bit for me and anyone who's listening. Well, it's, it's, very, it's very dangerous to go away from a plant-based diet toward an animal-based diet. When people do, part, part of the problem is what they lose. Animal products don't have any fiber in them. They don't have any vitamin C. So you're missing the antioxidant power that, that you need. And what they pack in is a lot of saturated fat that in your body causes you to make more cholesterol. It, it's associated with Alzheimer's disease. So you're getting less of what you need and a lot more of what what's not good for you. So hopefully people will stick with a more plant-based pattern. Yes, definitely, definitely. So from there, I was talking about menstrual cramps and premenstrual syndromes, symptoms, mood, those kinds of things. So how have you, I know a lot of women, I know a lot of women that have, you know, say that their mood is altered before their period, that they feel more down, they're more heavy. Have you found that a plant-based diet can help improve those those symptoms where they're more emotional and things don't seem quite right? 
Yeah, um, well, what we think is happening is these are all signs that relate to changes in estrogen. Uh, at, the, at the beginning of the month, there's very little estrogen in a woman's body. So let's say she's just finishing her period and she's starting a new month. There's almost no estrogen in her blood or, or, or not very much. But then it rises to a peak and then it falls after about two weeks. And that's when she's ovulating. So the ovary is releasing an egg. And then the, over the next week, the, the youth... I got to tell you, the uterus is the most optimistic organ in the body. Every month it's convinced this is going to be the big one. <laughs> and so so the amount of estrogen starts rising again and it, it reaches to a peak. And what it's trying to do, it's trying to thicken up the uterine lining in anticipation of pregnancy. But then after a week or so, the disappointed uterus discovers that we're not pregnant again. And so the amount of estrogen then falls and then um the lining of the uterus is discarded as menstrual flow, and then it starts every month. But this roller coaster of up and down, up and down estrogens um, affects mood. It, it can make you feel bloated and have water retention. Uh, so it's a combination of physical and emotional changes. And then at the end of the month, when that lining disintegrates, it releases prostaglandins that cause cramping. Um, and the, so if I'm eating not enough fiber and too much fat, then that, that whole curve is increased. You get too much thickening of the uterine lining and that causes too much cramping and you get prostaglandin production that makes you just feel crummy and rotten and your body chemistry is thrown off. So um, the way to smooth out that roller coaster is really two things. A healthy, completely plant-based diet. I mean, I'm talking about vegan, no animal products at all. And secondly, keep oils very, very low. Um, so even though we love peanut butter and guacamole and things like that, keep them really to really keep them to a minimum because what you're going to discover is that your cycle is then smoothed out. And um, in the research study that we did with Georgetown University's Department of OBGYN, we tracked not just pain, but we also tracked PMS symptoms, uh, particularly bloating, water retention and mood changes. And we found that they all improved. Now, they improve differently for different people, but what we think is happening is that instead of this roller coaster of estrogens, it's a little more smooth sailing. Oh, by the way, can I, can I tell you one thing? I got to tell you one other thing. In, in the course of this research study, um, we asked all the women to not use any hormone medications. So if, let's say a woman was on, on birth control pills. That's Those are hormones. And that would confuse our study. So we said, please, for the duration of the study, if you're sexually active, could you use some other kind of birth control. And one of the women in the study said, don't worry about me. Um, I don't use any kind of birth control. And she, she apparently she and her husband had concluded some years earlier that they could not have a child because they had both been evaluated. And she said, it's not him. It's me. I'm infertile. I don't ovulate. So we don't use birth control and I'm infertile. That's it. Um, the second month that she was on the low fat vegan diet, she came into our center and she said, Dr. Barnard, um, I've got some bad news and I've got some really good news. And I said, well, well, what is it? She said, the bad news is that I have to leave your study. And the good news is I am pregnant. Oh, <laughs> my gosh. She, oh, oh not, not, only did, not only did she have a baby, she gave, gave birth to a healthy baby and then another baby and then a third baby after that. And this... My, my previous uh, case is the woman who had menstrual cramps, and then here's a woman with infertility and so forth. These people did not, th there was nothing wrong with their bodies. Um, and despite the fact that they are told by their doctor, you're infertile, you've got dysmenorrhea, this is a diagnosis. What, in those cases, what they were was out of balance. 
And all hormone, hormones are messengers that um, go from one part of the body to another part of the body. And if you have too few, of the, too, too few messengers, your body can't function. But if you have too much, it can malfunction too. You gotta get in balance. And that's the case with estrogen. Yes. I have to say, there's two things that you've mentioned that I just wanted to go back to. I, I, like that story is incredible, and I, 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 I'm just so happy that that woman's had the success that she's had. Uh, but one of the things which I think many women listening will be interested in was when you spoke about because they just because we're just used to being in our bodies. We don't really think about how that, you know, we don't really think about how our heart functions. We just know it's functioning. You don't really think about how your liver functions. It's just functioning. Uh, Hopefully. We, we just trust that they are. You know, we have this blind trust that everything's, everything's doing its thing. Uh, and the same with our, uter- uh, with our uteruses. Um, uter- <laughs> I don't know how to do the plural yeah, of that. Work. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. But um, when you spoke about how, when we make too much, the, the cramping that we feel at that time of the month is that there's, you know, that the lining has become too thick and it's, you know, your body's getting rid of, getting rid of that excess lining of the uterus. Uh, I had never thought of that. Like it seems so ridiculous that I wouldn't have at 40 years old thought about, like I knew it was my lining, that the cramping was the lining, but I never thought that the Ex, that the women who are having that really extreme pain was because they have an excess of the lining. And so how does that come about? Well, and again, this was, this was my mental image that led me down this road um, when this young woman was calling me up. And I, I, honestly, like I say, I don't think any doctor ever suggested such a thing for a menstrual pain patient before. But I think it is correct because what you see is um, you can actually measure menstrual flow in research studies. And what women very often discover is that when they're on a low-fat, very plant-based diet, not only does the cramping improve, but their flow is less. Um, instead of it being a heavy flow that goes on for a longer period of time and clotting and stuff, it tends to often be much more moderated and so forth. So what we think is happening is that the ovaries are making estrogens. Um, but when you're on this healthy diet, the ovaries make less estrogen and your body is able to excrete them better so that you don't have the huge... Uh, excess estrogen all the time. So you do get some uh, endometrial thickening. The endometrium is the the lining of the uterus. You get some endometrial thickening, but not so much. And uh, at the end of the month when it's discarded, it produces prostaglandins that cause cramps. But if you don't have this big, thick endometrium, the um, prostaglandin production is much, much less. And that's important, not only for reducing cramping, but the prostaglandins get in your bloodstream. And so they affect your your mind and uh, they have brain effects and it just makes you feel cruddy. So. Okay. Sorry. I was just listening to you and then thinking, thinking about what you're saying as well from my, from my own self. And so when you're talking about making – one thing I was going to say is definitely for me, prior to being plant-based, my cramping was really, really, really heavy and oh, sorry, and painful and my period was really, really, really heavy and I never questioned it and it would go for about eight days and now it goes for barely four or five days and it's much, much lighter and much, I don't really, I occasionally get cramping at all but I used to get, you know, terrible cramps and have to take painkillers for a couple of days while that was going. So that's really interesting because, you know, you kind of just think, well, maybe it's just age, <laughs> you know, maybe it's just... No, no, no. It, it's, it's the diet change. And it, part of it, part of it we don't understand. For some reason, 
when a woman reduces her fat intake, you know, you're not eating any animal fat, you're not eating any cheese fat or beef fat or chicken fat. When you reduce your fat intake, the body makes a little bit less estrogen and that's good. It gets you into a better balance point. Um, but the other part of it is fiber. And we do know how fiber works. Um, fiber is plant roughage. So it's in vegetables and in beans and so forth. And if you, your, your liver is filtering your blood and every minute of every day, it's pulling excess estrogens out of your blood and it sends them into the intestinal tract and they're literally flushed down the toilet. So your body is flushing away excess estrogens. However, this depends on fiber. If you don't have fiber in your diet because you ate salmon for lunch or a cheese sandwich, cheese and salmon and you know animal products don't have fiber. Um, if there's not enough fiber in your intestinal tract, the estrogens that are supposed to be being flushed away actually end up being reabsorbed back into your bloodstream. And so women on omnivorous diets, by that I mean they're, they're eating meat and, and cheese and so forth, they're actually reabsorbing the estrogen their body was just trying to get rid of. Um, and the answer to that is fiber. And fiber is in beans and vegetables and fruits and, and whole grains. And if, if all you're eating is from plants because you're on a vegan diet, then you have uh, an estrogen uh, removal system that is working the way nature thought it was going to work. So all these things work together. And, and one last thing, you're not eating cheese. Cheese contains estrogens. Um, dairy products contain estrogens that come from a cow. They, they, they're a match for yours biologically. So you're not eating them and that helps you as well. Wow. But I, th I think that for a lot of women who love cheese, which is a lot of women out there who, who who would say, you know, I would go vegan, but I can't give up cheese. This is, <laughs> right, <exactly. laughs> this is something, a piece of information that may help those women make finally ditch the dairy because a lot of women are suffering with menstrual cramps or polycystic ovarian syndrome or fibroids. With fibroids, is fibroids also an issue of an unbalanced hormone? Yes. Um, fi what fibroids are is... The, the very inner lining of the uterus is the endometrium. That's you can think of it as a soft little cushion where the where a, a fetus is supposed to snuggle up, and around that layer is a muscle layer that that makes the uterus strong, and in that muscle layer, knots of muscle cells can form, and those are fibroids, and that's under the influence of estrogen too. Um, so if a woman has fibroids and she just waits till menopause, if she can stand it, um, very gradually the fibroids are going to probably diminish because her estrogen stimulation is stopping. But she might say, well, what can I do between now and then? Um, well, a healthy vegan diet will calm that down a little bit as well. Um, although we don't, we have, we have not done a study on the fibroids, um, the way we have with just ordinary dysmenorrhea. Um, but it's the same, it's the same biological mechanism. And, and by the way, let me make a pitch for thinking big picture on this because cramps won't kill you. They, they may feel like they're going to, but they won't. But the same hormonal lack of balance that can lead to, to something quote unquote benign like cramps can also lead to breast cancer, which will kill you. Um, and in men, prostate, prostate. How does, how, how, what do you mean when you say that? Like, how can our bodies being out of balance lead to breast cancer? Every hormone has to be in balance. Um, take your thyroid. Your, your thyroid is at the base of your neck and your thyroid keeps up your energy. And if you don't have enough thyroid hormone, you'll be, you'll be dragged out and tired. If you have too much, you'll be wired. And, and if you have a real excess of thyroid hormone, it can kill you. 
Um, insulin is a hormone that's made in your in your pancreas, and it directs your body to manage blood sugar. And if you have too much insulin, it will kill you too. Um, all hormones are so powerful that if you don't have any of them or don't have enough, it's incompatible with life. And if you have too much, they will kill you. Estrogen is like that too. It may seem sweet and nice, but let me tell you, estrogen is a tough molecule. It's a tiny, very small molecule. It can sneak into a breast cell. Once it gets through the cell membrane, it can sneak through the nuclear membrane into the very heart of the cell. Once it's in there, it can attach to your DNA and damage it and cause that DNA to uh, that cell to become a cancer cell, which then splits into two and four and eight and 16. So uh, if you look at women who have a high level of estrogen in their blood, for whatever reason, they may not know why. They may not know that it's because they've been eating cheese or they've been eating a high fat diet or they have been ignoring their fiber. For whatever reason, they're higher, they've got too much estrogen in their blood, their risk of breast cancer is that much higher. You're just shooting more estrogen molecules through your breast cells. Okay. By the way, let me say a word for men um, on this. Men may think, oh, that estrogen, that just relates to women. Um, there are guys who, um, hopefully women don't worry about this, but guys uh, read magazines and they talk about man boobs. Mm. Is, is that a word people have used? Yes, used? In, I've heard it many okay. times. All right, okay. Um, where that actually comes up is, is with soy. Um, there are guys who have heard this myth, which happens not to be true. I, has, I hesitate to even repeat it because people will believe this. But uh, men, the, the mythology is that soy products like tofu have phytoestrogens in them, and that will cause a man to have, develop man boobs. Um, however, uh, if you go to the beach in August and there's a guy there who's taken off his shirt and he's got a heavy set and he's got some breast development, go up and ask him, how much tofu have you eaten this past week? And he'll look at you like, what? Say, uh, edamame, miso, soy milk? And you'll get a blank stare. Um, he doesn't eat any of those things. He's been eating burgers and pizza. And as he's gained weight, his body fat, body fat converts male hormones into female hormones. His own body fat is making estrogen. And that stimulated the breast development. So um, soy does not cause man boobs at all. No, it has none of that effect. It's really fascinating that you're saying this because my husband, I'm so Ranjita, if you're listening, which you will be because you'll edit this podcast. But uh, when we first met, he was always really, he wasn't vegan. He was eating lots and lots of cheese. Like he loved cheese and he and chocolate. And he would often, he didn't, they weren't very significant, but he would always, he was a bit self-conscious about his excess of breast tissue and he would talk about his man boobs a little bit and be really quite paranoid about it and nervous about it and it's interesting because he went plant-based well he went mostly plant-based um when I went plant-based in 2008 so in our house was plant-based eating and then when he was out he was eating whatever he wanted to eat and then he went vegan oh nearly two years ago now uh well probably two years ago now or a year I don't know, but you know, he's had a year at least of being vegan and he's now has none of that problem. Like he's eating soy in his coffee. He has tofu. He has all the soy products, but he doesn't have any, any, any of the, any of the issue he had is totally gone now. Um, so many men, I, where this goofy idea came, came up that, that, uh, um, that uh, uh, soy would cause man boobs. It, it's a funny thing because um, it, it, it comes simply from, from excess body fat. And the same is true for, for women. A woman, if a woman develops 
extra body fat, each fat cell will, will create extra estrogens in her body, and that's going to increase her risk of postmenopausal breast cancer. By the way, while, while we're on the subject of soy, um, just so we're clear, soy does have what are called isoflavones in it, and uh, genistein and others, they're there, and they do in fact attach to estrogen receptors. And so people weren't crazy uh, in, in imagining that it could have some effect. However, people got more sophisticated, and they discovered that there is more than one kind of estrogen receptor. There's the alpha receptor, and there is the beta receptor. Um, and soy seems to attach preferentially to the beta receptors. Um, what this means is that women who consume more soy products don't actually get more breast cancer. This was the fear that women would get breast cancer if they ate soy products. It's just, it turns out to be exactly the opposite. Women consuming the most soy have the least breast cancer. Um, it's not a huge change. It's about a 30% reduction um, in Still. cancer, 30, 40, yeah, 30, maybe 40% reduction in cancer risk for women who consume the most soy. Um, and, and, and most importantly, if a woman had breast cancer in the past, she was diagnosed, she was treated, she's got one thing on her mind, which is I hope this never comes back. Um, if she consumes a lot of soy, her risk of a recurrence of her cancer will be cut again by roughly 30%. So the, the reason this is important is there are a lot of ill-informed but kind of well-meaning um, uneducated physicians who will say to a cancer patient, um, you've, you've had breast cancer, so I guess I wouldn't need any tofu fire you because it's got phytoestrogens. And that's, it, it turns out to be completely wrong. Uh, if, if a woman avoids soy, she's just increased her risk of cancer mortality quite substantially. Okay, so if the people who are listening are saying, well, then how am I going to get calcium? Dr. Neil Barnard, if, they, if they're cutting out all this dairy and cheese and yogurts that they've been told, told for, for all of the education system, through all of their parenting and life, but then but they need to have, you know, a tub of yogurt and a stick of cheese and a glass of milk every day to get healthy bones and teeth. What happens if they ditch all of those things and become a nut and seed and plant eating <laughs> rabbit person? <laughs> yes. They'll become a philosopher. You'll acquire a taste for folk music and wear tie-dyed clothes. Exactly. Um, uh, well, it's important to say uh, cows do not make calcium. Calcium is an element. It's in the earth. And it goes through the roots of plants. And so it ends up in the green leaf of the plant. And so if a cow eats grass, then some of the calcium that was in the ground, it's now in the grass. The cow, the cow eats it, and some of that calcium will get in the milk. And if you drink milk, you'll absorb roughly 32% of the calcium in the milk. So what Mother Nature had in mind is that we would eat green plants too. Now, hopefully not grass, but broccoli or kale or collards or Brussels sprouts or you name it, they have calcium in them. And for some, it's not highly absorbable, but for many, it's very highly absorbable. Um, the, the, the absorption fraction from, say, Brussels sprouts is about double compared to milk. So, um, no, calcium, calcium is in plants. And the only reason cows have it is because they're eating plants. Okay. And good. that's your source too. I'm glad you clear, you've cleared that up for me. One of the questions that one of my people who listen asked me to ask you when they, I said, what questions would you have, Dr. Neil Barnard? She was talking about that she has been plant-based for a little while and she's noticed a more brittleness in her nails and hair and more hair falling out and being more brittle and easily damaged along with her nails. What would you recommend she would she should add into her diet to maintain healthy nails and hair on a plant-based okay. diet? Um, sure, great question. Um, 
uh, I, I should I would first back up and just say, is it is it really food at all? Um, for some people, it's seasonal. They discover that in winter they're they're not as good, and in summer the, the, the things are much more robust. Um, so. Um, that there are other things to look at apart from diet. Um, but if it is dietary, if you want to think of it, if it's diet, I very, very rarely hear of this, but I maybe in the past 30 years, I might have heard of four or five cases of people who felt their hair was thinner or something like that. And in those cases, I've discovered that they seem to do better by boosting their plant protein a little bit. When I say plant protein, these are people who are eating fruit all the time, which has some protein, but not really a lot. And if they're having more tempeh, tofu, edamame, um, soy plants, or 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 not, or or, or other bean products, uh, beans of various kinds, and their their protein intake goes up, somehow that seems to stop. Now you're very likely getting more than enough protein no matter what. Um, but I found a couple of applications for uh, for increasing plant proteins. That's one, and the other is in case of moodiness. Um, I found that sometimes people feel a little bit better if they have plant protein at breakfast. Um, for many people, they don't have to worry about this. But let's say you discover either PMS is bugging you or your mood is a little bit down. Um, try this. Um, early in the meal and early in the day, what I mean is at breakfast, first thing you eat, have it be something like grilled tofu or grilled tempeh. Um, if, if people never did this, you go to the store and you get a block of tempeh, which is just um, fermented soybeans in a block. And you slice it up into little kind of bacon type slices and marinate it in a little bit of soy sauce and throw it into a nonstick pan and cook it for just a couple minutes. And it comes out nice and crispy. And unlike actual bacon, it doesn't have any cholesterol or any animal fat, no saturated fat, nothing uh, embarrassing in it. Um, and then you eat that first. Now, some people might do the same thing, but they'll have it be baked beans um, or tofu. Um, particularly Japanese people will start a meal, a breakfast often with tofu. Um, whereas uh, other people may think that's strange. But the plant protein early in the meal seems to, for some people, help their brain chemistry to get in better balance, and they find that their mood is better for the rest of the whole day. So you don't need to do it at every meal. It's just that one time before breakfast or at the beginning of breakfast. Okay, that's interesting for me especially because I like a sweet breakfast like oatmeal or smoothie. But um, this is something that I would definitely be trying because I do think that well, for me, I would like to have that energy and groundingness for the day. And I know... I yeah, just just, see, just give it a try and just see it. Um, you just do it, uh, like let's say you have a big bowl of oatmeal, but before you have that, have a couple of slices of tempeh or tofu or something like that or a serving of beans. It doesn't have to be very much. It's just a little pretreatment of it. And what it does is it seems to block the uh, serotonin production in the brain, which is, is serotonin is very handy if you want to feel kind of sleepy and doze off, but it's not so good during the day. It can make you feel kind of crummy. At least that's, that's the explanation that we've had. Okay. Awesome. And one other thing was about my brother, he's plant, he's plant-based and, but he has, he's more flexible than I, than I am, but he was worried that without not getting enough protein was making him not sleep well at night and that perhaps and he was recommended by his doctor to increase you know seafood or fish or meat to help him sleep better at night that protein helped him sleep better at night so what would you say in response to that i would do exactly the opposite i would do exactly the opposite first of all you don't need animal protein at all ever um and um if you have a conscience you won't sleep very well anyway if you're eating animals um 
And so have your, have your, have your protein come from plants, but load up the protein earlier in the day and at night go light with it. Um, so if, if your evening dinner is pasta and uh, more starch, starchier foods, you'll find that you sleep better. And if he's the kind of guy who, wake, who wakes up in the middle of the, of the night, it's three in the morning and something has awakened him and he's bugged. This is actually the only time Dr. Barnard is going to tell you to go and have white bread. Have two slices of plain old white. It can be any kind of bread, but white bread is probably the best for this. What it does is it quite rapidly will bring your blood sugar up a little bit and apparently cause the production of serotonin and then lie down. And you're going to go right back to sleep. Um, so, you know, white bread is not as good as whole grain bread, generally speaking, because it doesn't have fiber and so forth. But for this one application, it acts like a medicine. Oh, wow. I've, n- I've never heard that before, but I'm definitely going to pass it on to him. Even if he doesn't listen to my podcast, <laughs> I'll definitely be telling him in the family text. There's other issues with sleep, too. Um, if he's a coffee drinker, um, every, different people metabolize coffee d- differently. For some people, they metabolize it so slowly that about a quarter of a cup of cups of coffee's worth of caffeine is still in your blood at 10 o'clock at night. Um, so you might think about that. It just makes your sleep lighter. If he likes a, a, a glass of wine uh, in the evening, around four in the morning, that alcohol will have metabolized in the liver to an aldehyde, which is a stimulant. So alcohol and coffee are two things to think about. The third thing, and this is just basic sleep hygiene. Um, the third thing is exercise. If you're only exercising your thumbs or your fingers on your keyboard all day, and the rest of you is not getting any exercise, your sleep will be lighter. Um, if you get physical exercise of any kind, push-ups or running or anything, so that your muscles are tired, it actually triggers the brain to tell you, you must be unconscious for a while <laughs> so that I can repair. Um, so all those things will help sleep. Yeah, okay. Thank you so much. I will be passing them on because I know coffee and wine are probably something that he experiences, but he does run every morning first thing for a, a long, a long, long distance runner. So... Okay. The, ex- the exercise won't be it, but it will definitely be the coffee and the wine, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. And, and I didn't mean just wine. I mean, any alcohol will do it. Beer, it could be beer or anything like that. And even a relatively modest amount, it, in the, the liver converts it to these stimulants that will, will wake you up. Wow. I never knew that that happened. So that's really, really interesting. I wanted to talk about polycystic ovarian syndrome because I know a lot of women – and I'm, I think I mentioned this um, the other time, but that people that I know who are getting to my age, around 40, and they've had, you know, a lifetime of menstrual cramps, they've had a lifetime of, you know, polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis, and now they're saying, I'm done, I'm sick of this. And their doctors are saying, look, you've had, you know, a bit like people who have ongoing tonsillitis, and the doctors are just like, just get the tonsils removed. Their doctors are now saying, look, just you've had so much suffering. Just get your uterus removed. You're finished having kids or you're done. And so they're actually electing to have a hysterectomy at in their late 30s or in their early 40s because of these issues. So is what what could possibly – sorry, my question's gone. But Yeah, no, I, I'm with you. Yeah, how can we help these women who are – their uteruses are the worst enemy at the moment? One of the really common reasons for, for hysterectomy is endometriosis. And this is a common condition where the, the, the lining of the uterus that we were talking about earlier, it's made of individual cells that apparently swim up through the fallopian tubes and they implant all around the abdomen. And it can be very painful. 
and they can implant on the intestinal tract, they can implant on the ovary, they can implant on the fallopian tubes and strangle them, leading to infertility. Um, in fact, let me tell you, about, uh, there's a case in, the, in your body in balance that I have described, a young woman named Catherine, who was in Air Force, uh, she was in the US Air Force as an engineer. Um, and she, uh, when, when she was, she was in the Iraq war and when she was in the war zone, she was not eating a lot and working really hard and, and she kept quite thin and so forth. But when she got back home after the, the, her tour of duty was finished, she sort of made up for lost time and she started tucking into food and she she had a particular penchant for cheese, macaroni and cheese and cheese snacks and queso and all, all these things. And she started gaining weight. But in addition to weight gain, she started getting pain in her abdomen. And her doctor did various um, procedures and finally diagnosed endometriosis. And she tried painkillers and she tried hormonal treatments and nothing was stopping the pain, which was really uh, terrible and, and disabling at least a day per month. So finally, the doctor said exactly what you're saying. Um, let's just get it all out. Let's just remove your uterus and and things will be fine. And except that she was quite young at that time and she and her husband had, they were still effectively newlyweds. And she thought, you know, maybe they, maybe I have a chance of having a family and I don't, I don't, I don't wanna have this surgery. But her doctor said, look, you've got endometriosis that's so severe, you're infertile anyway. She thought, okay. Um, so anyway, so she said, I'll have the operation. But she had six weeks to wait for the operation. And during that time, she went to see a nutrition, a nutritionist. Who, who gave her the same diet that we had used for menstrual pain, which was vegan, no animal products at all, and kept oils very low. And quite rapidly, she started feeling better. Her energy was better, she was losing weight, her pain was, was less. But at, at, when six weeks arrived, she dutifully showed up for the, for the operation. And they anesthetized her and the doctor started the laparoscopy where you make an incision and you look inside. An hour later, she woke up in the recovery room. And the doctor is there with his hand on her shoulder, like waking her up. And he said, Catherine, you still have your uterus. No. <laughs> I, didn't no. I didn't take it out. He said, I looked inside and your endometriosis is gone. You had a couple of adhesions from where it used to be. And I removed those adhesions. But the disease process has somehow gone away. You just don't have it anymore. So I didn't feel right about doing the procedure. And her, anyway, her mother is in the room with her. And so the mother says, she went vegan. And, so, and the doctor said, stop it. Um, the doctor said, foods do, do not cause endometriosis. And there is no way that a diet change could be the answer to it. There, there's only one explanation for what's happened here. And that is, you have experienced a miracle. <laughs> so anyway, so, so what, what he didn't real apparently think of it is that endometriosis is fueled by estrogens. And so she went on a diet that reduced the estrogen, estrogenic waves and troughs in her blood. And so the stimulus for this endometrial cell growth was taken away. And the, the endometrial implants just gradually dissipated, which is exactly what you'd expect. And she never needed the hysterectomy. She's still got a uterus. She no longer has endometrial disease. And she has three children now um, and feels great. And in fact, uh, Catherine started a, a center in Dallas, Texas, to teach other women how to cook and how to take back their health. Because I, I got to tell you, I mean, you, as you know, doctors are really overprescribing pills and procedures. Uh, and they're not thinking about how the body has certain healing capacities of its own 
if we just get out of its way. Absolutely. And I've experienced that myself with my multiple sclerosis and fibromyalgia. One thing I wanted to ask you is I've met a few people who are already plant-based, but they're from their culture, they're Colombian or they're Italian and they're like, oh my gosh, Corinne, everything that you're saying, like I love the animals, I love the planet, but you can never stop me from eating olive oil on everything. What do you say? But, and they have, but they're still having symptoms of, you know, maybe they're bloating, their period cramping is still really high, they're still having polycystic ovarian syn, you know, ovaries and are struggling with their menstrual health and u- uterine health. But how can I explain to them to cut the oil out, Dr. Varnard? <laughs> well, for, you know, from an ethical standpoint, they're doing a good thing. You know, they're... Um, they, uh, they, they've moved away from animal products and they're moving to, to plant oils. And, th- and that's a good thing. And, and from the standpoint, olive oil is better than chicken fat or butter. It's, it's the amount of saturated fat, which is the bad fat in it, is much less. Uh, and I'll give you the numbers. Uh, for chicken fat, about 30% of chicken fat is saturated fat. That's the kind that raises cholesterol and is linked to Alzheimer's and so forth. For um, olive oil, it's about 14%. So it's better. Um, But uh, if a person's trying to lower their cholesterol, if you take away the olive oil, then their cholesterol will will drop more because you've taken away that bit of saturated fat that's in the oil. But now if a person has estrogenic problems, I got to tell you, um, people still run into trouble if they're using plant oils. Now, getting the animal products out of your diet, that's job one, because once you've done that, you've gotten rid of all the animal fat and now everything you're eating has fiber. And that's good for many people end of story, they're fine. But if you're still having symptoms, you want to, to really minimize those oils. And if you need to be convinced of it, um, there's no faucet on an olive tree. Um, the, the, way, the way you get olive, olive oil is you take a thousand olives or 10,000 olives and you throw away all the fiber and all the pulp and you concentrate the oil and you put it in a jar and you pretend that it's somehow natural and normal um, or whoever came up with the word virgin is a genius because they made this plant extract sound like it's something miraculous coming from heaven. Um, but it's it's just like taking sugar from sugar cane. You throw away the pulp and you concentrate the sugar and people realize that's processed. Well, olive oil is highly processed, even if they call it virgin. Yes. It's very fascinating that I've never thought about the name extra virgin olive oil. <laughs> like, I've never thought about that. It's I mean, just marketing. It's just marketing. Yeah, isn't, isn't that brilliant? Yes, exactly. And by the way, we got to say a word for men. I don't want to leave men out of this Please discussion. Please don't. Um, be, because we were talking about uh, over-medication and so forth. How many guys go to the doctor for help with their sexual performance? A guy walks into the doctor and he says, Doctor, you know, I, um, I'm having trouble with my nature. And the doctor's not quite sure what he's talking about. Um, and eventually the guy has to say, Doc, I can't raise the flag anymore. So, oh, yes, okay, I got it. The, the doctor realizes he wants a prescription for an erectile dysfunction drug. And if the doctor writes that prescription, then the patient walks out of the office. If, if, if it's a good doctor, he will drop his pen, leap to his feet, run out the door and grab that man before he goes down the elevator and bring him back into the office. And he's got to explain something to him. The doctor will now say, you can take the Viagra or whatever it is, but the, the, the reason that you have erectile dysfunction It's not that you have performance anxiety or something like that. The reason that you have erectile dysfunction is that you've got narrowed arteries that are narrowed by atherosclerosis. 
the, the patient looks at him like, what? What are you talking about? And what the doctor has to explain is that the male's sexual anatomy is like a hydraulic system that needs good blood. If you don't have good blood flow, nothing works, you know. So what's happened to him is he's been eating cheese and he's been eating meat and his cholesterol level has come up. And the cholesterol in his blood caused his all of his arteries, arteries to get narrow. Um, so the doctor has to say, if you got narrowed arteries to your private parts, you got narrowed arteries to your heart. And you've got narrowed arteries, the carotid arteries to your brain. What I mean is that in the next five years, you are at high risk of a heart attack or stroke. So I can give you a Viagra prescription, but before you leave this clinic, I want you to make an appointment with our dietitian to get on a low-fat vegan diet because that is the diet that is used to open those arteries up again. And if you do that, you'll protect your heart and protect your brain. And one of the common side effects of a, a vegan diet is that erectile dysfunction often reverses too because those arteries will open up just like the ones to the heart. Yes. Yes. Well, I'm glad because I have two sons and a husband and I want them not to, not that I really don't want to hear about my son's erectile function, but I mean, I want them to have healthy hearts and all of those things and, and prevent heart disease. And from what you're saying, the erectile dysfunction is the canary in the coal mine that's saying, Ooga, you know, there's something, there's something wrong, you know, go, go see someone or do something differently because the next thing is going to be that your heart or your, or your, or a stroke right. happens to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The, the arteries to a man's private parts are very, th are very narrow to start with. And so if a man has a, a trace of atherosclerosis, they'll start to get narrower and narrower and narrower. He'll, he'll discover that he's got the beginnings of a problem. And if he's at the point of seeing the doctor, he's got atherosclerosis for sure. Um, and so then the, the coronary arteries and the carotids are right behind. And by the way, not just that, the, even the arteries to the lower back get atherosclerosis, the lumbar arteries. And when you don't get good blood supply to the lower back, the discs between the vertebrae, you know, your bony vertebrae have little leathery discs between them. They don't get good blood supply. And so a man is more likely to herniate his uh, a disc and end up with, with, with lower, and, and not just men, women too, same thing. I know that's shocking to think. It is. So interesting. I want to just want to say, because I know a lot of people at my parents' age, they're in their 60s, uh, have knee and hip pain, you know, constant knee and hip pain. And it's not, I know that there's wear and tear, but would that also be happening in their, in their knees and hips? Like, would that be causing issues in their pain in their knees and hips as well? I'm guessing in that case, it, it's probably not a blood flow problem. Um, it, it, it could well be one of two things. It could well be osteoarthritis where they're, where they are having some wear and tear, but in some cases there's an inflammatory component. Um, and animal products accelerate inflammation and plant products tend to be kind of a fire extinguisher on it. Um, and so if a person has rheumatoid arthritis in particular, um, to a lesser extent osteo, but, um, but they can try it. A, pl a plant-based diet, especially a diet with no dairy products, is a good way to go. We've had at least one person on, come on the show who's overcome osteoarthritis and several people who have helped have found a plant-based diet has pretty much eliminated their symptoms of, what's the other arthritis I'm thinking of? Rheumatoid. Rheumatoid arthritis, yes. Um, well, rheumatoid arthritis is a classic autoimmune condition. Now, I say classic because, frankly, they're all kind of murky. Um, we, we, the, the, the last word is not in, but thyroid disease, hypo and hyperthyroidism, uh, asthma, um, MS, and, and uh, other things. The body is somehow attacking itself. 
And there can be genetic components, there could be environmental chemicals that play a role, but diet can be part of this too. And that's why when people uh, remove from the cocktail of things that we're exposed to, when they remove dairy proteins in particular, but also meat proteins and others, that for many cases people improve quite a lot. Um, maybe the most famous case was Venus Williams, who was really at the peak of her tennis career, and then she just started to tank. And she had a disease called Sjogren's disease, which is an autoimmune condition causing uh, fatigue. And it causes, it's a peculiar, peculiar thing. Your eyes get dry, your mouth gets dry. Um, and it's a relatively simple diagnosis. But uh, there's, the treatments for it are terrible. But she went on a completely vegan diet. And it just calmed down the autoimmune condition. She got her game back. Um, so anybody who's got an autoimmune condition, you may need other treatments, but there, there is every reason to get the animal products out of your diet. There are so many reasons. And I often say to people who, you know, people who think, oh, well, basically anyone who dies that's vegan, <laughs> people who are skeptics say, oh, well, obviously plant-based eating doesn't heal you because that person died. And I always think, look, if I dropped dead tomorrow from some multiple sclerosis side effect, I've still had, prior to being plant-based, I've now had 12 really great years where I've run, I run every day, I feel great, I have energy, I'm not constipated, I don't have candida every month, I don't, all of that. That eleven, I would have had eleven years of constant constipation, candida. That I was having depression, brain fog, menstrual cramps, clotting, and fibrom chronic pain from fibromyalgia, and possibly be in a wheelchair by now if I'd progressed the way I was progressing with my multiple sclerosis. So if I dropped dead tomorrow now, I'd be like, well, at least I got twelve awesome years rather than twelve years of suffering, just endless suffering. So for me, it's always a no-brainer. Like, why would you? If it could, if it just fixed the constipation, it would have been worth it. And I stayed having multiple sclerosis. Well, you, you know, the, the body does, is it is an imperfect thing. Mm. Um, we're not going to live forever, and we're fragile in our own ways. Um, it's kind of like your car in a sense that you can drive it and really baby it, but things will go wrong, and that's true with the human body for sure. However, there are two things that we want to do. We do want to live a good long life. Um, and we also want to be as functional as we possibly can while we're alive. And for many people, they really kind of start dying when they're 30. By, by that, I mean they're starting to gain weight and they're more fatigued and they're not able to do the things that they used to be able to do. And they start to take a medication for their blood pressure, or their cholesterol, and they get some side effects from it. And they, don't, they just don't feel young anymore. And when they're 40 and 50 and 60, they start accumulating joint pains and, and all kinds of, of issues. They've got lipid problems, they've got blood pressure problems, they've got a trace of diabetes. And life is a gradual decline. What's much better is if you're able to maintain your energy you're feeling great. And, and for me personally, I think I'm going to die at age 120 in the Grand Prix of Monaco. I'm going to be in a, a fiery inferno crashing my car against the wall. <laughs> and I intend to, to live as fully as possible up until then. I feel the same way. And if you've ever listened to the show, I always say 120s when I'm going. Regular people can live to 100. I'm living to 120. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I hear you. I won't probably crash my car. But I, I, 
I'm, I'm here. I'll do everything that I love and be climbing mountains and hiking around the world and then hopefully just fall peacefully asleep <laughs> at 120. <laughs> at 120. But yes, I, I think, and I think as well for me, knowing that I'm treading as lightly as I can on the planet as far as my food and, and also causing much less harm to the animals is as I possibly can. Obviously, the animals do get lost in the harvesting of crops, but they're getting lost harvesting crops that are getting fed to fattened animals as well. So, Well, absolutely. And, and, and those motivations are really, really important. And when we do research studies, people come in only because they want to get rid of their diabetes or they want to get rid of their joint disease or they want their cholesterol or whatever. But after about a month or two on the plant-based diet, they inevitably say just what you said. They'll say, you know, I've been thinking about this. <laughs> and you read about the climate change and, you know, the fires and uh, that are out of burning out of control and uh, both in Australia or in the Amazon or, or wherever. They think, I realize I'm not contributing to that so much anymore. And think about what the animals go through. People start saying that. And I have to say, I'm always really glad when they do, because what that means is, um, First of all, it, it is good for the animals and it's good for the earth, but it's also now they have an extra motivation where they're not going to cheat. Um, if they're at a party and there's a little chicken on a toothpick, they're going to say, I, I just don't want that. I'm, I'm just past that. So it's it's more motivation for them. And it's also more mo motivation than for their kids or their family members to follow suit, too. So I think that's a, that's a really good thing to, to think of the total impact that your diet choices have. I think it's how it helped me so once I became an ethical vegan and I know people think that that's but that, that sometimes people have judgments about ethical vegans that we're pretentious and judgmental and whatever but for me well, was, but you should be because you are better than everyone else <laughs> <laughs> you are in fact better than everyone else so you can you can be as judgmental as you want well when I first was <laughs> when I first was di diagnosed with MS and I went Plant-based, <laughs> when I went plant-based for my health, when I got pregnant with Iggy and, I, and I'd heard that MS goes into remission when you're pregnant, well, for, for a lot of women, I was like, all right, then I'm going to eat whatever I want. And I ate whatever I want. I went back off plant-based eating and I ate ribs and all these things that now make me disgusted. But once I made the connection, once I was breastfeeding my son and I was like, oh my God, like cows. This, the cow milks for their babies and they don't get to breastfeed their babies. And I was just crying thinking about all the baby cows that my choices had separated from their mothers and their mothers were pregnant for the same length of time as women. And when I made that connection as I was breastfeeding my son at five in the morning and I was just like, oh, my God, I love you so much. And, oh, my gosh, cow moms love their babies too and I'm robbing them of the chance to be with their children. Um once I made that connection, it, from my health, if we're talking on a health perspective, people who are listening, that connection, and however you can make that connection, if it's watching documentaries like Earthlings or Dominion or uh, there's so many great documentaries out there, or it just watching, you know, looking in online in groups and things or going to um, a sanctuary and meeting the farm sanctuary animals, however it is for you, connecting to animals yourself in person, one-on-one. -on -one. For me, that was when my health turned around because I wasn't going to cheat ever. That food wasn't food anymore. That was someone's body part. That was someone's child. That was someone's milk that belonged to their baby that they didn't get to give to their baby. And so that for me was an absolute game changer in my own health journey. Cause I, 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 you know, 
the thought of eating those foods, they're not foods to me, they're somebody else's suffering. I couldn't agree more. And I often puzzled about how our society sort of takes away our decision making in that regard. I grew up in North Dakota. And I did not grow in a family of psychopaths. I mean, we were intelligent people. <laughs> um, but but every fall, I would take my 20-gauge shotgun with my dad, and we'd kill the ducks and geese who were trying to get out of Canada to get into a warmer climate. My dad grew up in a cattle, cattle business, and he, I, I, with him, drove cattle to slaughter. And you think, well, why is it we don't put two and two together? And I think it's because there are just too many complicated choices in life. Um, and so some of them we just give over to culture. And our culture has said this is okay. In fact, this is necessary. In fact, this is uh, the way it is or this is what God wants us to do or, or whatever our, our reasoning process makes it okay. And at some point in your life you think, wait a minute, this is actually not doing me any good. In fact, it's doing me some harm and, and maybe it's not so good for them either. And you start putting these, these things together and you, and you start viewing the world in a different way. But everyone around you is still immersed in a culture that has green-lighted things that they may one day regret. Yes, absolutely. And I, I look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the same. My family, I remember, I remember killing a rabbit myself when I was seven years old. And I still am traumatized by jumping on this. It had been shot, but it hadn't died. And I, my dad's like, jump on it, you know, put it out of its suffering. And I had little pink girl gumboots on. I remember myself, you know, having this innocence, but then this horror of what I was doing. And like, I knew at seven that I was vegan in my heart. You know what I mean? Like I was vegan in that moment, but I didn't want to disappoint these adults around me who were saying, just do it, just kill this beautiful little creature. And when I talk about it with my vegan friends now, and they're just like, oh, how could you, how could you have done that? And I think, I don't know. Your peer, your peer, your parents are your compass for decision making and choices, and you just trust implicitly that they're that they're right and knowing. And yeah, and then you as you wake up as an adult sometimes, and you realize that the things that you were doing were in, well, especially when you know that they were senseless and causing your body harm, the planet harm, and the animal harm. And no one's benefiting from that choice. Many of the things that we do aren't really matters of, of really informed choice. And in children very often start out um, kind of wide-eyed and, and, and open to almost anything. But fairly early on, they're, they're uh, introduced to meat eating. Often the, child, the child's in a high chair and mother puts a little meat in as the kid's tongue and the kid spits it out. And the mother puts it back in, the kid spits it out. Eventually the mother wins. Um, and then uh, children will explore um, from there on. Kids often go through a bit of a sadistic phase. Um, when they're about maybe four or five, they can even torture animals, and then they kind of grow out of that. But then the culture imposes on them a whole s sort of a template for how we behave, and many people don't really question it very much. Um, of course, nowadays, uh, the whole planet is questioning it, questioning it because our own survival may depend on, on us re really thinking it through. So um, that's all to the good. It is. It is. I, I think that it's just about, like, I have to really realize that I, I obviously wish that I was vegan from birth and that I didn't have any involvement in eating the bodies of the other creatures on this planet. But I mean, we are at where we're at. And I think that it's just about us all loving and forgiving because I didn't know until I knew, like I hadn't, I just did not know until that moment that I was breastfeeding Iggy and I was like, how could I not know this? You know, how could I not know this? And then my this, world this changed. 
Yeah. But, but now you're making up for it because you're inspiring and educating many other people. And you'll never know how many lives you've saved. But I guarantee you, you have saved a great many. Oh, thank you so much. Now, I know we have to go. So please, where can people buy your beautiful book, uh, Your oh, Body and Balance? See. I, I have a copy. Um, yes. Here it is. Oh, here it is. Yes, excellent. Your Body in Balance, The New Science of Food, Hormones and Health. People and are- yes, and let me break about one part of it. At the very bottom, it says recipe uh, menus and recipes by Lindsay S. Nixon, who's the happy herbivore. And Lindsay sent me these recipes, 65 recipes. They're delicious. They're easy to make, um, relatively few ingredients, very familiar. But she also sent me a note. And the note said, Dr. Barnard, I hope you like the recipes, but I need to tell you that the diet changes that you talk about cured my menstrual cramps, too. So, so many people are, are discovering um, these changes and whether it's something uh, a minor or not minor, but a non-life-threatening annoyance like cramps or endometriosis or infertility um, or something serious like, or life-threatening, I should say, like prostate cancer or ovarian cancer, breast cancer. All of these relate to hormones. Hormones can be uh, dialed into balance by foods and I say let's put it to work and make some noise so that everybody knows about it definitely and Lindsay Nixon just one thing about I've, I've been following her since my own journey began and I have all of her cookbooks and if you're if you're in the states like get her cookbooks because she's amazing but if you're um, in Australia I love her cookbooks as well some of her, some of her ingredients are a little harder to find here because they're more it, you know, they're, they're more common over in the diet of the United States. But um, I love they're so simple comfort foods that if you're missing those kind of comfort food, warming foods for your soul, I love her recipes for that. So her, your book is so exciting because not only it has all of your incredible research and information in it, but it has 60 recipes of Lindsay's that you can try out for yourself. So I'm very excited. It's on Amazon and everywhere else. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's on all the online places um, and, and – uh... It's in bookstores, at least over here. I, it may be making its way over there, but you can get it online. And I hope people like it. I hope they download it or or get a physical copy or whatever. But more than anything else, share it with somebody else because they had no clue that these things could be changed. Yes, yes, definitely. So it, the links will be in the show notes for anyone who is listening. Thank you so much, Dr. Neil Barnard, for coming on the show. I've absolutely loved talking to you. Well, thank you. Likewise, it's been fun talking to you. And thanks for spreading the good word. Thank you so much, Dr. Barnard, for coming on the show. I love that episode. Everyone, go grab your copy of Your Body in Balance. The link is in the show notes. You can get it everywhere that you can get books online. It's in bookshops all over the United States. It will be headed over here shortly, I imagine. Uh, Please share this episode if you can with your family and friends on social media or over the dinner table or at your yoga class when you're walking out after your session, (laughs) wherever you are, where other people also are. I would love it if you would share this episode with them and Dr. Barnard's research, research with them. And thank you all so much for listening and supporting this podcast. And thank you for your patience with episode finally getting here a week late. And yes, I will be back next week and I hope you have a wonderful week trying new things. I'll be trying tempeh for breakfast and I just want to give you an update on my progress with Andrew Spudfit-Taylor's coaching. I am feeling really good still. My mindset is really, really great. I have been eating so 
in line with my what what we set out in our coaching session and i'm really i'm really surprised that it's been so long where i've just maintained this consistency uh yeah it's been really a, such a such a relief and a freedom uh and my weight has dropped some more since last week now i think i've gone down hold on I think about four kilos. Now, I'm sorry, everyone who's thinking, what is that in pounds? I don't know, maybe double. I'll maybe have a look in the show notes and let you know. But if I haven't answered that in pounds, message me and I'll do the math or you can do the math and let me know. But anyway, four kilos is what I've lost so far and I feel great. And I'm so thankful to Andrew Taylor. So thank you, Andrew. Hope you're having a wonderful day. I don't think he listens, but you can you can all get my intention. <laughs> He'll feel it wherever he is. He'll know that I'm grateful and I love him. Uh, yeah, thank you all. Love you all. Have a great week. Bye. Bags are packed. Are you ready to go? This time tomorrow we'll be on the road. Riding with you in the sunnier 